KRCL, Salt Lake City. Support for Radioactive on KRCL comes from our sustaining members and Mark Miller Subaru. Welcome to Radioactive, a show for grassroots activists, community builders, punk rock farmers, and DIY creatives. I'm Laura Jones. Thanks for plugging into your community tonight. Coming up, a diversion from our Music Meets Activism series because Nick Burns had the opportunity to talk with a writer about their new book. Stick around to hear his conversation with author Taylor Brorby. He's the Annie Tanner Clark Fellow in Environmental Humanities and Environmental Justice at the Tanner Humanities Center at the University of Utah. Taylor's latest book, Boys and Oil, Growing Up Gay in a Fractured Land. Fascinating conversation. You're not going to want to miss it, so stick around for that. And I've got a road trip for you. Recorded as part of our 801 day, it was an extra I wasn't able to share at that time. It's with Jeremy Bradford Pugh of Salt Lake Magazine, also author of the guidebooks Secret Salt Lake City and A Hundred Things to Do in Salt Lake City Before You Die. Before you wrap up your summer, we have a few road trips to recommend. First, Rallies and Resources. It's a list of events that you can find on our website, krcl.org, under the Community Affairs tab. Items that we think listeners of Radioactive in particular might be interested in. For instance, coming up on Saturday from 8 a.m. to 1 p.m. at the Salt Lake County Environmental Health Department, it's the UCARE Gas Can Exchange Program. Check tonight's show notes as well as Rallies and Resources for a link. But basically, you can exchange your old gas can for a new Environmental Protection Agency compliant one. It'll help reduce emissions and improve Utah's air quality. What you're gonna get in exchange is the Shorecan gas can. Yours has to be completely empty, by the way. Don't take them one with something sloshing in it. And yours has to be a pre-EPA standard gas can to get the new EPA compliant gas can. Also on Saturday from eight to one, KRCL will be at the Farmer's Market broadcasting live. Shanna Lee with Saturday Breakfast Jam and John Florence with Saturday Sagebrush Serenade will be there. Stop on by. Al, the punk rock farmer, and I will be hanging out. And I've got some questions for you about the Great Salt Lake that may end up on the show if you give us a good answer. Look for us on the third south side of Pioneer Park on Saturday. Also on Saturday from noon to three at the Capitol, stand with Ukraine. The war is not over yet. A rally being hosted by the Utah Ukrainian community. And then don't forget KRCL's own 909 day coming up on Friday, September 9th from four to eight in the parking lot here outside the station. Radioactive live in the parking lot that night. We've got the Zizu's booked to play and they're gonna play another set after the show is over. Plus the record sale debut for the year is during 909 day. We'll be stretching records, all sorts of great stuff from the community as well. Details about 909 day and all the other things I've talked about can be found on krcl.org. And don't forget rallies and resources under the community affairs tab. All right, back on 801 day, you get it? August 1st, 801, 801, the area code originally for all of Utah. Well, we celebrated all things local, including some road trip ideas and stuff to see around the state before the summer is over. Didn't have time for all of it, and I've got a pocket of time here to share some road trips that Jeremy Bradford Pugh put together. As I mentioned earlier, Jeremy, of course, is with Salt Lake Magazine, co-author with the late Mary Maloof of the guidebook Secret Salt Lake City, as well as 100 Things to Do in Salt Lake City Before You Die. Here is one of his recommended road trips. 
I would say, you know, this is a, you know, pack, pack a lunch kind of stuff, but you could, um, drive up through Willard and Perry on 89, uh, head up I-15 and Old get off. Old State Road. Yeah. And there's, it's a beautiful drive. you know, it's called kind of Fruitway. Um, Brigham City and Perry and Willard are still very orchardy kind of places. And there's lots of little fruit stands to stop by, pick up a watermelon, get some strawberries. Lunch or dinner at Maddox. And then, yeah, Maddox restaurant. I, I just sort of love that place. I grew up, my grandmother lived in Pocatello, so it was like the family, well, we've got to stop at Maddox. You I know, think you and I have talked about this yeah. before because my grandparents <laughs> lived in Twin Falls. And so right. up uh, either on the way up or on the way back. Right. Yeah. And, you know, get the chicken fried steak, the root beer. Is fantastic. The son of the original owner, his name is Irvin Maddox, and I used to pal around with him when he was in college. And his main contribution to the family business was creating an excellent birch root beer. There you go. It's on the menu. So there you go. You can sample the root beer. That's that's it's my family's <laughs> kind of pub crawl. So Maddox, and you can see the the cows out in the field still. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. Well, they used to, yeah, it used to be kind of a, like a lobster tank kind of situation where you could kind of pick your <laughs> yeah, cow. Yeah, they fix that a little <laughs> they bit. They haven't done, they don't do that anymore, but they do, you know, they do buy their, their beef locally and mm-hmm. source a lot of local ingredients. And it's just a classic, like, American boy howdy steakhouse kind of place with good pie and, you know, good fixins and all that. Well, and keep going north, right? Yeah. I mean, let's make it a, you know, a, a big trip and you could keep you know, stop in, eat your lunch and head up to the, the golden spike at promontory point, which is a, you know, I mean, all that stuff, you know, the trains met East and West, the country was united right here in Utah, way out in the desert. And, uh, but it's really cool. They have reenactments and, um, the, the, you know, sort of recreations of the original trains are there. Um, there's a lot of great history and, you know, it's a national monument, you know, something to check off your national park, national monument, bucket list or part, you know, passport. Um, and if you're really feeling adventurous, you could continue out in that area to go out to the spiral jetty, which is this famous work of land art, Robert Smithson. Yeah. And it, uh, you know, it's now because the lake is level is so low, it's now fully out of the water. Um, and you can get some great vantage points on it. It's a cool, you know, Instagrammable thing that yeah. lots of people go do. So, well, if there's still time, stop at the Bear River Migratory Bird Refuge, and you can see pelicans defy physics. Yeah, <laughs> that's my favorite thing there is to spot the pelicans. Spot the pelicans. Yeah, that's a that's a fantastic place to, for birders. It's also just pretty nice place. You know, it it's is. it's uh, and yeah, I mean the bird life there is abundant and. Well, and you can meditate on what might happen if the Great Salt Lake continues to exactly, shrink, right? That's because that ecosystem. <laughs> it's a migratory bird refuge. So these birds are migrating uh, throughout the seasons. And if it goes away, what happens? Yeah, that's one of their main you know, truck stops. They yeah. stop by on the way to parts south and parts north. If you have time, folks, I would also recommend tacking on in the evening. You know, call ahead, see if it's open. The Spock, Stansbury Park Observatory Complex out in Stansbury Park. We're going to take you on quite a loop for this yeah, road that, trip that we're talking yeah, about. You might want to, yeah. But <laughs> on August 6th, Skywatcher Leo T is hosting a star right. party out there. It doesn't cost you anything. You just got to get yourself out there. They'll pull out the big telescopes if it's not too windy. And you can take a look at what will be the last integrated international space station because Russia just announced it's pulling out. Uh, <laughs> so you can see Sorry some, for some space bad history. Yeah, some space history or in the gone. making. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, it is pretty cool. It's a nice spot out there too when the sun goes down and 
You can pull out telescopes or bring your own and take a look at the And Stansbury Park is kind of a funky place. It There's is. all these like homes built on like canals basically mm-hmm. and yeah. people boat they have boats and boat around their neighborhood <laughs> and there's a brew pub or two out there between Stansbury Park and Tooele yeah Bonneville Brewing's out in Tooele um, my friend Dave Watson's the brewer out there uh, you hey know. Dave yeah hey Dave <laughs> Uh, and, uh, yeah, I mean, and Twilla's kind of fun and Magna are kind of fun too. All right. Let's talk oddities, strangeness, eccentrics. We all know where you start and that's going to be Gilgal. Yeah. I think if anybody wants just a little quick, easy dose of Utah weird, just the Gilgal's right there, you know, um, so I, I wrote about a lot, a lot of this stuff in my book, Secret Salt Lake City, um, and Gilgal is kind of the the cover boy of the whole thing. You know, you've got where else are you going to find a, 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 a sculpture of Joseph Smith on a sphinx? Uh, you know, and, it, and, it, and it's it's kind of hidden. I mean, I think it the words out, but I know oh, there's yeah. many people who haven't even gone there. It's just a small little public park with kind of. Mm. It's a nice place to hang out too. So yeah, it used to be just followed your nose to the Wonder Bread Factory. Right, it's in that block that's just <laughs> off Seventh East and Five Hundred South. It's now a county park. It was a huge, huge win to save that park. Right. It almost became condos. Right. Yeah, it was encroached, and, and the friends of Gilgal and a lot of preservationists and are you know because it, it is a great example of outsider art. The name of the man was Thomas Childs. He was a, a, a stonemason. I mean, he, and he was, but he was also just kind of an insurance salesman. He was a bishop. Uh, you know, a lot of this is sort of LDS uh, mysticism and things that, and, you know, his, it was kind of his backyard nighttime hobby to make these massive sculptures in and bring in, you know, scriptural references and, and, and they're, they're cool. And, you know, again, he wasn't an artist. He's an outsider artist and it, it's really wonderful that we have this that that we were we were able to save that that little piece of it's history. It's now Salt Lake County Parks, I believe, yeah. has responsibility for it. My favorite part, folks, if you haven't been there, is the mound in the middle and the um, disembodied individual <laughs> yeah. and the scriptures around it. I also like the stripling warrior that's uh, made out of right. There's like he- there's like heads and mm-hmm. arms and, and grasshoppers. Like, grasshoppers. It's uh yeah, it's it's funky and. I don't know. I've I've taken some nieces and nephews there. It's a fun place for kids to like walk around because they can kind of climb on things and check stuff out. So when our new boss gets to town, officially, <laughs> definitely going to take him over to Gilgal. What else is on your oddities and eccentricities list? Um, the Summum Temple uh, is a pyramid over on the west side. It's also near the old. Fisher House, which was the sort of the, pro, the scion of Fisher Brewing. Um, so the, and that's kind of a nifty thing. You can walk around the, it's one of these old manses, but it's often a very kind of tucked away corner of Western West Salt Lake. Um, set in a, just a neighborhood yeah. and uh, it's, it's their, you know, I guess international headquarters. It's a religion. <laughs> of, uh, of this, uh, this, this, they practice notably uh, mummification. Uh, as part of their rituals and stuff. And you can get your pet mummified there for a fee, if you wish, if that's how you wish to preserve Fluffy. Uh, and they also do human mummification. So if, I don't know if you're in the market for that. Good but. thing to know on 801 day that you can get that done right in the 801. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, you know, another thing that I think is extremely odd it's out. There's a lot of odd things out west in the Great Salt Lake. There's uh, two in particular that would make a good drive is to go out to the Bonneville Sea Base, 
at some point, um, a diving enthusiast, scuba diving enthusiast, uh, just dug some holes in the ground out there and filled them with sort of a brackish water and that you can go scuba diving out there. And they have sort of this odd menagerie of saltwater tropical fish floating around in there. Um, and that it's just a like, what, you know, someone had a, had an idea and they brought it to fruition, mm-hmm. but people get dive certifications and things out there. And, um, they even have a very deep dive, which is like a 60 foot, which is a really, 60 meter dive, which is big deal called the abyss, which is literally just a very deep hole drilled into the, into the dirt. Um, and that lets you experience deep water diving. And then also out in that neck of the woods is Yosepa, which was, um, uh, a Hawaiian, it's a, it's a ghost town. Um, and there's still markers and graves and things out there and some really cool signage, but it was a, it was a, in, uh, what would you call it? a settlement? Um, of Hawaiian immigrants to Salt Lake City. And uh, a lot of them came because they were converted to Mormonism uh, in the Hawaiian Islands. Uh, the LDS Church had a lot of missionary success in the Polynesian Islands in general. Um, and they, they took these poor people from this verdant island and gave them this land out in a, in a charmingly named place called Skull Valley, uh, and aptly named. Uh, yeah. And they made a go of it, um, dry farming, which, and doing some cattle ranching and things, but eventually the, you know, kind of collapsed under its own weight. Also, many of them left, returned to Hawaii to help yeah. build the Hawaiian temple. Well, and the story of that, folks, Josepa, is actually there's a documentary in the works that's uh, happening over the next couple months. I can't wait to see that documentary because it's being made by Pacific Islanders. Oh, fantastic. So they're going to tell their own story because its founding is actually fraught in its its time when it was set there was racism involved as well yeah. as religion because it's out right. in skull valley right right there was and a, there they was made a, it bloom yeah and 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 there was that you know they they got all these people here and then there was racial tension and mm. irrational fears about leprosy and um and all of that and they said well you can go out you know i mean it's a kind of a long drive now i imagine in t- those days it was quite a haul to get out there so Jeremy Bradford Pugh of Salt Lake Magazine, Secret Salt Lake City, and 100 Things to Do in Salt Lake City Before You Die. I hope you squeeze the last bit of summer before you got to head back to all things official. And to get us from here with road trips and Jeremy to there with Nick Burns and his conversation coming up next with Taylor Brorby, author of Boys and Oil, Growing Up Gay in a Fractured Land. I got a song for you, Promised Land. It's Bruce Springsteen on KRCL, Radioactive. The Utah Food Bank's Grocery Rescue Program addresses poverty, hunger, and food waste in Utah by distributing food that's nearing its expiration date but still healthy to eat, including fresh produce, dairy, and meats that would otherwise end up in landfills. To find a food pantry near you, visit utahfoodbank.org. Support for KRCL comes from our listeners and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. You're listening to Radioactive. I'm Laura Jones. Coming up at 7 o'clock tonight, Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman and crew, followed by Thursday Night Psych Out at 8 with DJ Mike. Gianni Walks the Dirty Boulevard with you at 10.30. I Don't Sound Like Nobody with Rich starts at 1. Jolene bringing you some illustrated blues at 3. And then Jean Florence starting off a brand new day at 6 a.m. And now that conversation I promised you between Radioactive's own Nick Burns and Taylor Brorby, whose latest book, Boys and Oil, Growing Up Gay in a Fractured Land. Here we go. 
Welcome back to Radioactive on your community connection, 90.9 FM KRCL, and of course, krcl.org. I am Nick Burns. Taylor Brorby's new book is called Boys and Oil, Growing Up Gay in a Fractured Land. Taylor Brorby is the Annie Tanner Clark Fellow in the Environmental Humanities and Environmental Justice at the Tanner Humanities Center at the University of Utah. Taylor Brorby, that's a long job title. It's a very long, comprehensive <laughs> title. But welcome to Radioactive. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, my pleasure. Your book, Boys in Oil, Growing Up Gay in a Fractured Land. I, You know, this really resonated for me. You had me crying at times. I loved the way the book's constructed. Um, it's been called, quote, a bracingly honest coming-of-age memoir, close quote. Uh, to me, that's a little thin because I read a whole lot more there. There's this deep prairie grass roots you have to the fractured family relationships as you come of age. And of course, you grew up in Western North Dakota, surface strip mining, fracked gas wells, boom and bust. Um, and then there's also your environmental activism. So let's jump in. Tell me your thoughts about the title itself. Boys in Oil Growing Up Gay in a Fractured Land. Yeah, well, thank you again so much for having me, Nick. And I guess that title, I wanted a memorable title and a title that's a little cheeky. You know, in the, the gay community, we call other men boys and things like this. But I grew up in a landscape that bends towards hyper-masculinity and also how do we educate boys to be masculine, to be dominant, to put their bodies on the line for the work that they're doing, whether that's farming or ranching. But also, I wanted to place a narrative in there about a young gay boy growing up who wanted to be tender and had to exist in a sometimes violent landscape and around violent people. Um, and then oil, of course, implies the Bakken oil boom in the western part of the state, which really ramped up in 2006. But I also wanted a little wink, wink, nod, nod there about we use oil for other things other than just powering our cars and things like that. And so that can get us to chortle a little bit. But then the subtitle uh, growing up gay in a fractured land implies exactly what you were talking about fractured land as strip mining, as hydraulic fracking, as, you know, we're talking about the landscape. North Dakota, to my mind, is the testing ground of the country's worst ideas. It's where there is the genocide of Native Americans that then resulted in, you know, reservations. There's the monoculture in the eastern part of the state, sugar beets. There are Minutemen missile silos in the northern third tier had North Dakota seceded from the Union at the height of the Cold War. It would have been the third most powerful nuclear nation on the planet. Uh, the damming of the Missouri River, the list goes on and on. And so I wanted to hint at the idea around fractured in the land, fractured relationships, fractures within families and fractured people. And people forget that, that all this, you know, fracking of the oil wells literally is going on underneath this surface land that has been so contoured, you know, from the bison roaming over the prairies to the badlands. Um, your book is just 
you know, Taylor, it is it is lovely to read. I'm going to tear up just talking with you here, but but you literally had me crying in a couple places. The language is beautiful, but I, I want you to read a short excerpt here because the book you range from these essays to veritable short prose poems to these creative nonfiction interludes. Yeah. I think it's just amazing the way you put this together. Well, thank you so much, and I'm just gonna read about three paragraphs to get people listening to my home landscape here just to see a part of the world. I mean, North Dakota is the least visited state. And what that means is we don't know very much about that in the wider culture. So the bookshelf for North Dakota has a lot of room that needs to be filled by a variety of stories. But my book, I hope, is educating people in the way that I perceive the prairie or the way I see it. So this is from early on. The prairie is a tapestry of intermingled roots woven together. 100 acres of prairie may support over 3,000 species of insects. Yet when overlaid with extractive economies, it becomes simple, reduced to a bloodless to bloodless words, flyover country. When you grow up knowing you come from a place no one visits, your dreams settle for staying put, for digging in the earth, for doing the act you've been trained to do, make your money by destroying the world. Though you don't see it that way, you become a pawn in someone else's story, the story of that's the way it is, this is the way it has to be. The illogical violence wrought upon the prairie is propelled by powerful men destroying lives to line their own pocketbooks. And yet the prairie, like memory, is powerful too. It is a collection of single varied grasses woven into an interlinked tapestry that secures soil in place. That's how I like to think about this book, like the woven roots of a symphony of grass. The book is Boys in Oil, Growing Up Gay in a Fractured Land. Taylor Burby, thank you for that. Like I said, it's just lovely. Um, and I, I'm, I'm guessing here, but these different, I mean, that piece really reads like a poem. And I wondered how intentional that was, the way you sort of combined essays with prose poetry, um, and it sort of represents, I think, in a way, the fractures of your own life as you came to be who you are. Yeah, yeah. The the structure of the book is in sort of multiple movements, and the sections are labeled around the botanical terminology for a blade of grass, which is sometimes satisfying for a reader. Of it implies growth, it implies movement, and so there are different sections that way. My memory works more in these fractured bursts, these mm. hyper vivid ways of recalling an intense moment, whether that's through smell or feeling or sound. And so for me as a writer, I'm always aware of language and trying to use 25 cent or 50 cent words to get our ears buzzing rather than pennies or nickels and things like this. I mean, I wanted my book to sing and readers will find in this book there are a lot of s sounds and a lot of c sounds which sounds like the susurration of not only the ocean which north dakota used to be a short 350 million years ago 
but is also what the prairie sounds like when it's windy to me. And so then there are some hard CK sounds throughout the book, which to me evoke a pheasant while trying to tell a story. So I was trying to work on a layer of not only writing a compelling narrative that is the story of my life, but also at a craft level to really make it satisfying to be working, you know, in conversation with people like John Steinbeck, or when you say it's, it can be short essays or, or lyrical poetry or prose. Uh, I really think that's what Herman Melville was trying to do in Moby mm. Dick. You know, it's a book that's a, a collage. And so that's how I think of my book is a collage or a tapestry of sorts. Did did constructing it that way and thinking about language in those ways, did that help you to sort of maintain that reverence for the prairie, for the badlands, alongside what clearly is a lot of danger and destruction, I mean, to the landscape, but to you personally? Yeah, I think language is so important. We're living in a time where language isn't used with reverence and respect. And so part mm -hmm. of what a book can do is it can reaffirm why sentences matter, why stories matter, why language used precisely and hopefully evocatively can help us feel things, whether that's danger and fear or that's pleasure and passion. And I think we know that, but we're living in a time where it's surface level plot to many bad stories. And I think a good story is more complicated than just everything's good, everything's bad, destruction or winning. It It's to show us the the varied, you know, textures of lives that we're all living. Well, and it's interesting. Thank you for that. It's interesting. You mentioned the sea and the sounds of the the winds across the prairie because you do bookend the book with the seas. Yeah. But one thing that struck me, um, and I think it's closer to the beginning of the book, but I made a note here, quote, to live on the prairie is to be hunted, whether by a coyote, by a pack of boys, or by the sting of loneliness, close quote. Uh, and you do write about being hunted, about being followed, about being harassed, about being attacked. And I wonder about now, um, having, having written this book, Boys in Oil, does that help you or has that helped you sort of escape those feelings? I think those feelings are always present. You know, mm -hmm. one of my half-baked theories, Nick, is you know, for any listener out there, especially in rural America, you know, I think I could go out to a bar in my tiny hometown of 600 with a woman and put my hand on her thigh and nothing untoward would happen. But if I went there with a man and did the same thing, uh, to not feel danger presence, that would be a, a miracle. And I just don't believe that would happen. That Either, you know, we would get unwelcomed looks, maybe comments, maybe physical threats, or would we be able to get out of the county mm. even? And I think that is a real litmus test right now that writing a book on some level, I, I believe, settles certain things in the writer's mind because you've stewed and thought about things to render a story that's in service of others. You know, so many people will reach out to me and say, I hope you're okay, all these things. I mean, I've gone through, you know, years of therapy with things I've gone through. I mean, I don't write uh, for therapy. I write in service right. to other people, but everything you're suggesting about 
lingering issues. I mean, when I was just moving out to Salt Lake City last week, I didn't go into gas stations in rural Wyoming. You know, I just paid at the pump and just kept on going because it's just not that people in rural Wyoming are violent. When you're in an unknown area without contacts as a gay man, you have to keep your wits about you. And so those those issues linger for me. Well, Matthew Shepard is not far from your book, literally, no. figuratively, yes. Sad but true. I am stunned by the number of young people who I have tried this out. I've asked in my own classes, just last month I was giving a lecture on writing for social change to 50 students um, from around the country, high school students at Gettysburg College in Pennsylvania. And I asked it if anyone knew, uh, raise your hand if you know when I say the name Matthew Shepard, whom I'm talking about, no one raised their hand. I mean, next year is the 25th anniversary of his assault and mm -hmm. ultimate death. Uh, we are living in a time where we are forgetting our history, if we ever knew it. And I think that that creates a dangerous scenario for people. And maybe that's one of the risks for your book is that people will see it is placed in the 90s and not in the 2020s today, right? Yeah. The dangers are still there. Um, Growing up, you know, the and you write about this very eloquently that, you know, the boys around you in school, they all want to play football. You're you're like a star debater. Um, you're playing saxophone in the band, which is probably mostly full of girls. Um, but yet during those years, it seems like, you know, closeted or unaware or whatever, you did have some parental support at that point in your life. Um, and that must make the pain of that falling away even harder. Yeah, that is so true with this book. I mean, my parents were incredible for my childhood, my adolescence, when I went off to college. I'm the product of two all-state athletes who somehow, I mean, I have natural athleticism because of them, but I loved collecting coins or I obsessively drew Jafar, you know, and I was just always obsessed with something and wanted to know everything or practice, practice, practice. And I'm the first in my family to finish college, which from my parents' viewpoint was you go to college to earn more money. I mean, growing up rural, poor, though I don't think my parents would claim at the time we were poor. I mean, it, it, I mean, we lived in a county without a stoplight with a very yeah. grocery store that no longer exists. Um, and then, you know, they were supportive of me. My mom drove me to saxophone lessons every week, an hour away in Bismarck to sit in the car for a half hour while I tried to memorize the A major scale on my saxophone. You know, and that's a type of love and support. And later, uh, because a detail of who I am, you know, being gay was revealed, I was outed by my aunt, everything changed. And I still don't quite have an answer as to why that is where we weren't raised overtly religious or anything. Mm -hmm. But I think culture is very it can pressure a person and that that type of detail 
in certain environments about one's child can presuppose something, I guess, about the parents. And I don't know what that is. I've been thinking about that for well over a decade at this point. Uh, but, you know, one thing I will say that I've been thinking about more recently is not everyone in our lives gets to come along for the entirety of our lives. You know, my parents were really wonderful until they weren't. And that doesn't mean that that's not hard, that that wasn't painful, but a person has to put up boundaries to protect themselves. And if those boundaries are crossed, uh, more boundaries have to go up. You know, I don't want to sugarcoat. I think that's one of the things my book does is that at the end, uh, things stay frayed. There aren't tied up loose ends. There's no magical coming back together. Uh, and I've learned from my readers in these two months since the book's been out, that's fairly common mm. in America. We just all wish it were otherwise. But the idea of the grand return seems to me uh, more the minority of the stories I'm hearing. Well, the fracturing, the fracking is ongoing, right? Yeah, it is. Yeah. The book is Boys in Oil, Growing Up Gay in a Fractured Land. The author is Taylor Brorby. He is with us now on Radioactive talking about this book that I have just read as a New York Times editor's pick. So congratulations. Thank you so much. Oh, so as a teenager, I, I really like this in your book. As a teenager, you realize that, you know, you being gay is pretty much like having red hair. You call it bedrock. Um, your own personal geologic substratum, I guess I could say. And yet you also know you have to leave. Like you say, you're in a place with no stoplight. You grow up in a trailer, first one to get through college. You're not going to be a welder like your dad, work in the, in the power plant like your mom. And you do leave off to college in Minnesota, which is huge. But that's a fracture too, leaving. I mean, among the kids you went to high school with, you were probably an exception. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, just leaving the state was a huge thing. I always thought if I could get through the barrier of Fargo, North Dakota, <laughs> the world was by oyster, you know, and, and Fargo isn't a mecca or a metropolis, you know. It is hard to articulate how isolated and reinforcing of certain values North Dakota is. It is a hard place to leave. And even when a person leaves, it is hard to not be obsessing about that place, why mm -hmm. you had to leave, especially if you're a person who found it beautiful as I did, or full of incredible stories, especially around, you know, this nation's history. And leaving each time I left home, we moved to Bismarck when I was a sophomore in high school. My parents gave me that as an incredible gift because in my small town, I was getting bullied so much. They didn't know mm -hmm. the full truth of who I was, but they, they did that. It was a life-saving gift for me to move to Bismarck. And then by the end of my time at Bis in Bismarck, I knew I had to leave that mm. place too. And with each move, it felt like the world went more from black and white into the color. There was this magazine in college I'd never heard of called The New Yorker. It was publishing living writers. 
there were classes on uh, the Bible as literature, where I had been raised to think of it only as a foundation of faith. You know, there were philosophy classes, there were environmental studies classes. It was that my brain had sort of been cracked open and was sizzling on a wonderful skillet of ideas. And that to me was so liberating. And once I got a taste of that, I never wanted to stop eating at that buffet. Mm. I mean, it's a it's a rebirth, right? There's a fracture and a sadness for leaving home, leaving those wide open skies and spaces for sure. But your book really captures this sort of rebirth. And it wasn't an easy rebirth. Um, but as you write about from a trailer to Princeton, pretty amazing. It felt like going to the moon, you know, <laughs> I, I mean, I, oh. I, I graduated college at the height of the recession in 2010. And everyone I know who was trying to go into the workforce, they ended up living in their parents' basement and working unpaid 25-hour-a-week internships. Mm. And I didn't necessarily want to become a pastor, but I knew seminary was such an interdisciplinary way of learning. You had to learn languages, Greek and Hebrew. You got to take philosophy. You got to learn history, you know, all those beheadings and witch trials and all that good gossip. And it also implied that there was some sort of social justice element because you were encountering people at really important moments in their life, marriages, deaths, births, things like this. And to live down the block from Albert Einstein, just, you know, I just kept pinching myself for one of the country's greatest art collections. Mm. Uh, but a month before that, I was outed by my aunt to my parents and that was 12 years ago last Thursday on August 4th. And we are still living in that long fallout of a time. Mm. So I I dropped out of seminary after being there for only 10 days because the trauma was so it, to pick up on our theme, it really fractured the bedrock of my life. Yeah. And I mean, and that's such the, that's such the heart I want to say of the book is are these these two things are playing on at once. There's you, the personal, the 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 introspective, the tailor, and then there is this huge wide open prairie. Um, and I want to ask about Jakob, your summer romance, your summer yeah. fling, I think you use the word. Yeah. And you write, you write, quote, a person is laid bare rather in the badlands. Eons of erosion carve the world down to its most basic element, dust. There's no hiding here, even from ourselves, close quote. That seems to me like you're getting at something far more than just goodbye to your summer love. Yeah, there's a way where, you know, Teddy Roosevelt said about the North Dakota Badlands, it's, it looks like how Poe sounds. And I thought that's, it. it's both, uh, inviting. I love Edgar Allan Poe, but you always know danger is not far away. And North Dakota, Western North Dakota has this hilarious company town called Medora, uh, founded by the Marquis de Mora in the late 19th century as a big hub of cattle ranching. But now it's sort of reimagined in this uh, wild west kitschy town and I call it in the book the gayest town in the west and because it's populated with a lot of gay people there during the summer because it's so kitschy 
But there was a part of that summer romance and just leaning into it that, you know, I was in my mid 20s when this happened. And I thought this is something most people have when they're teenagers, mm. but because of where I grew up and who I was, there was no way that I was going to be dating the, you know, summer lifeguard and and not have, I don't know, being disowned happen. And so there was a way of being laid bare of just feeling both this excitement of knowing that this was going to be short-lived, it kind of creates an intensity mm. while also lamenting that, you know, to feel like you're you're a fully realized adult in your mid-20s and so far as any of us are, and to think, my goodness, this sounds a decade later than what people I went to high school were doing, you know, just getting swept up in all those feelings and to do it in a landscape that is so iconic also really felt romantic at the time, which was lovely. Oh, well, your description of your summer with him is just, it's precious, it's tender, it's sweet. And I guess I would quote you or paraphrase you, it is like you're a teenager. Yeah. Um, but that danger is still there, right? You go camping with a bunch of friends, a bunch of guys, and, you know, it's a little bit gay, if you will. Yes. And here comes a drunk guy with a gun rack and a pickup truck. And it's immediate, you know, we could all be shot. Yeah. Um, it's not easy. So, no. so Taylor, here you are, you know, two miles underground, the fracking goes on. Um, on the surface, there's this violence in your own life. I mean, you're beat up, you're attacked. Um, and there's this emotional violence in your family's response to you coming out, obviously, but not entirely. So maybe this would be a moment. There's another section of the book that I thought maybe would be nice to hear about. And that's it, it pertains to your fingernails. Yes. Yeah. I would love for everyone to get my get to meet my grandma Brorby. Both of my grandmothers are in this book, but my grandma Brorby died when I was eight. And my mother's mother, my grandma Hudson Bueller, died when I was 20. And I didn't get to come out to either of them. Yeah. But there are these sort of ways where at least the story I tell myself is my grandmas knew they had a special grandson by what they did or how they raised me. But this is this is a little bit longer than the prairie section, but it's early in my book. And I think it establishes kind of what I'm working with. Uh, we heard from the prairie, sort of that landscape writing. And then this gets us more into the human world of, of rural North Dakota. Thank you. One day I sat at Grandma Brorby's vanity in Aunt Sheila's old room while Grandma fiddled with her pearls and asked, would you like to have some fun, honey? I never said no to Grandma, the woman who peeled my apples and cut my bologna sandwiches into little triangles without the crust. She knew I didn't like crust. Grandma lifted me up and plopped me on her lap. She unscrewed the lid of a small vial. Her acrylic nails clicked against plastic. Do you like how my nails look, Taylor? Oh, yes, I told her. I like them a lot. Would you like your nails to look like mine? I closed my eyes to think about it. We like to keep each other in suspense. I opened my eyes and looked into the bright light of the vanity. Grandma rested her chin on my small shoulder, her curled brown hair tickling my ear. Yes, I said. 
Grandma's white teeth glistened behind me. Her eyes glittered behind her large glasses. We sat, and she hummed as, stroke by stroke, my nails turned crimson, one, two, three, until all ten shined like bright little apples. And then Grandma held my hands, one by one, and blew. When Dad came to pick me up, I bounded up the green carpet stairs like Daisy, my grandma's black dachshund. Dad saw me, and I stopped. I knew that look. His eyes flashed to Grandma. Go back downstairs, he said, and I slid on my butt, bounced harder and harder on each step because I knew I had done something wrong. I went and sat in front of the vanity and stared into the mirror. Mom, I have one son and one daughter, not two daughters, I heard him yell. Each word jolted me as I sat in my small chair. I held my cheeks with my fingers and then peeled the paint from my nails. I mean, it's such a microcosm of your book, right? The, the, the up, the out, the fun, the proud, the happy, and then you're slapped back down again, metaphorically in this case. Um, near the end of the book, I know that excerpt was from near the beginning of Boys and Oil, thank you, but near the end of Boys and Oil, you write about the cliche, the time heals all wounds. I think you call it a Hallmark card moment. Yeah. Um, this book is now published. Right. You're, it's out and about, no pun intended. Yes. Um, your life is bigger. Yes. Your life is greater, I think. Yeah. Um, so what do you think now? You mentioned 12 years ago, this issue with come, you know, being outed to your parents. Yeah. Is time healing any of your wounds? Uh, not those wounds. Uh, I, you know, there's not, uh, there's no contact between us, uh, though I'm sure they have to know this book is out there. I mean, distant family members have read it. Okay. It's hard to be in North Dakota and not have heard about the book. And so in those ways, that wound is still there. It's it's mm -hmm. like earlier in the book where I'm talking about the Badlands. You can drive around in the Badlands and you can still see wagon wheel tracks from where Custer was heading west and had the worst day of his life. And so in some ways, I think that is part of that landscape that certain things don't necessarily heal. Maybe they fester. I'm not sure, but I think Part of what my own book has taught me and it now being out in the world is uh, there's a lot of work I have to do out there. And I mm. want to be there for people and be supportive and be a, a kind author who's working for justice. And so to sit around and stew about what has happened detracts from uh, the work that I have going forward. Oh, thank you. There, There's also in your book as it goes on, and and this was a little bit of a surprise to me, but in a really positive way. You were one of the first people in all of the state of Iowa to be arrested over protesting the Dakota pipeline. And I see you sort of blossom in the book towards environmental activism. And I wonder if there's a connection between your sort of engagement and being more out in the activist world and also sort of saving yourself coming out. Is that is it like the same path for you? I think in some ways it is, you know, four generations of my family has worked in fossil fuels, coal, oil, and natural gas. And somehow my family has produced a crunchy granola environmentalist. And part of that, though, was growing up hunting and fishing and being in relationship with the land and 
eating fish from rivers and deer venison and feeling a lot closer than many of us who shop at Whole Foods, you know, things yeah. like this about a little bit more reverence and relationship in that way, I think planted seeds. And then college, you know, pushed me further in terms of climate change and what we're seeing and witnessing and extractive economies. And going to Iowa, to Iowa State University to do my MFA in creative writing and environment, that first semester, the country's largest pipeline was announced. And I had just finished living in the Bakken oil boom the prior summer and thought, I need 800 miles between me and that to work on my books. Mm -hmm. And then this massive pipeline is announced. <laughs> so I basically became a full-time grad student and full-time activist traveling around, letting people know what this oil does to soil, what pipelines do to land and wrote letters to the editor, talked at colleges. And when the time came, I just thought I have done my level best. And now uh, no one's listening. This is still coming. I need to get in the way, you know, and, and mm -hmm. part of it was that I have four nephews who live in Bismarck, North Dakota, and the Missouri River that flows through town that they drink from is certified radioactive from a Duke University study. And I thought, you know, when they're my age, I want, you know, if they asked me, well, Uncle Taylor, why didn't you try to do everything you could? I wanted a better answer than I don't know. So part mm -hmm. of it was, you know, not only the heritage of I've benefited from the fossil fuel industry, though I'm not a Rockefeller in terms of wealth, but also to protect future generations or to try to do that. And so part of it was coming out, as you say, in a whole other way, coming out as an environmentalist, which given my family's way of earning its living is risky as well. Oh, good point. Yeah. And no small irony, you move seven, eight, 900 miles away, and then the oil follows you underground right. to Iowa underneath yeah. oil farms. Anyway, um, only a couple minutes left, Taylor. So thank you. Uh, um, is your mom still working at the power plant? Do you know? No, both of them are are retired. Okay, because you know this is a little bit tangential to your book, but there is this. There has been news about carbon capture and yes. taking these these this in taking taking all the CO2 and sticking it underground. Yes, um, which is yet another way to sort of rape the earth. Yes. And that's, I guess that one of those test projects is the power plant where your mom long worked. It is. If people want to look up for more information, it's called Project Tundra, which is such <laughs> an inviting name. Oh. And um, you can see the lake I grew up swimming in. It's actually a lake in North Dakota that never freezes. And all lakes in North Dakota should freeze. I'll say. But the, the water from the reservoir is used to cool the coal-fired turbine engines. And as you say, Nick, I mean, just so listeners understand, it sounds like a greenwashing campaign. I mean, what's being proposed is not only at fossil fuel plants, but also at ethanol plants. So it links big egg and, and fossil fuels, but it's to capture uh, carbon dioxide on site liquefy it and then like at Minkota power directly insert it under the ground but what we're moving into is a whole wave of huge pipeline projects that will need to be constructed to ship liquefied carbon dioxide 
to North Dakota, where it will be pumped 6,000 feet under the Earth's surface, where it will magically stay forever. This is, in fact, the last section of my book called Cap Rock. It doesn't yeah. say carbon capture and storage, but that is what is implied by the end of my book is that, you know, it's easy to blow up mountains. It's easy to clear cut forests. But my theory about the prairie or flyover country is that disturbs us so much that we have to try to poison it. We try to clear cut it with farming. We try to dam it. And now we're even going to try to go underneath it beyond fracking to put a product since the air is already compromised like what I was taught in Lutheran Sunday school, you know, God is supposedly above, as above, so below. Well, we are in fact doing that now. We've poisoned the air. We're now going to go under our feet and and put the poisons that we cannot deal with uh, there. So it's, uh, it's horrific. The world oh. is watching my home power plant. It is the test site for legislation mm -hmm. and this process. And you mentioned the Missouri River, you know, traces of radioactivity, which you call your home river. How long since you've been back to North Dakota, to the Badlands? When were you last there? I was last there in 2019 in October, oh. prior to the plague time. So I will get there this fall. I okay. will probably weep because I haven't seen my nephews in as long. And just the other week when I was moving from South Carolina out here to Utah, I ate barbecue in St. Louis along the Missouri River and I, oh. I just bawled. I mean, I just bawled because <laughs> the banks looked the same as where I grew up and there were cottonwood trees. And I just thought, you know, during this horrific time, I very well could die not have seen, not seeing my home river again. Oh. And so it just felt so restorative to me to see this massive water highway that I love and have so many memories around. So I'm so looking forward to being back in North Dakota this fall to to see that place that I love. Well, if other folks, other listeners haven't seen the Badlands, it's worth a trip to Western North Dakota. Couple more questions, Taylor. Boys in oil, growing up gay in a fractured land. The end note section, the thank you in Boys and Oil, your list of thank yous, I have to say, is like the largest and longest of any book I've ever read. Um, and, you know, shout out, you thank your teachers. Thank yes. you. You thank your professors. You thank some of your family. You've mentioned your nephews a couple of times. I know you're close to your sister. And yes. you thank other writers that we've mentioned, like Terry Tempest Williams and Louise Erdrich. And, and this seems true for many folks. And, and, I, and I hate to cite another cliche, but with all these thank yous, it's like you have a new family. It's a very different way of positioning self in the world, you know, especially in the queer community, people will use the phrase chosen family, you know, and it's not in any way to romanticize, of course, what's happened to me. I wish everyone I've always known could come along on my life's journey. There is a way, despite what has happened, I still do believe my life has gotten better with each mm. year. There are people I never thought I would be able to call friends whose work has inspired me. There are people I find in other places in my travels who become very dear, important friends. And so in that way, life for me has gotten easier in terms of relationships because I've sort of shed the yoke of 
you know, the small town I came from, which had limited options, just literally in number of people. I mean, just if we're talking about raw amount of people, mm. going elsewhere has cracked me open to a world of people who paint, who compose music, who who are geologists, you know, and that has really made for a rich life for me. Oh, thank you. Boys and Oil is not your first book. So I want to ask what's next? What are you working on this coming year here in Utah? Yeah, my agent has locked my mouth, but I can tell you a little okay. bit about what the, I mean, I will say that that big swath of the Great Plains and uh, the Intermountain West is going to be a source for a lot of material mm -hmm. going forward. And the the project that I pitched here at Utah is I'm going to be doing research around, I'm also a type one diabetic. And so I'm going to be doing uh deep historical research about humans understanding of about 3,500 years of diabetes, but then also thinking about how that relates to the current moment we're in with climate change in terms of how we think about disability and disabled bodies on a planet that for us is increasingly becoming compromised in terms of humanity's ability, not only to survive, but thrive. And so I'm trying to spend some real reflective time thinking about what I experienced as a type one diabetic disabled man and what the planet might currently be going through. So it's going to be a lot of a library time, a lot mm. of in the stacks and just uh, making photocopies for future use and <laughs> like that. So, um, yeah. Well, if you want to come back and talk with us on Radioactive again, please do. Thank you so much for having me, Nick. Well, the book is Boys in Oil, Growing Up Gay in a Fractured Land. The author, Taylor Brorby, just out this summer from Live Right Press. And I'll say, Taylor, just like the prairie, man, your book is tender and it's hard, I, you know, and I just it was a treat to read your language. So thank you. Thank you for making time to do that and for having me, Nick. Oh, my pleasure. Taylor Brorby is the Annie Tanner Clark Fellow in Environmental Environmental Rather Humanities and Environmental Justice at the Tanner's Humanities Center at the University of Utah. His new book, Boys in Oil, Growing Up Gay in a Fractured Land. Taylor Brorby, thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. Radioactive volunteer host Nick Burns in conversation with Taylor Brorby. And heads up, he'll be participating in this fall's Utah Humanities Book Festival. He'll read from Boys in Oil on September 14th at the King's English Bookshop in Salt Lake City. Check tonight's show notes for a link to Taylor and his book, as well as Jeremy Bradford Pugh from earlier in the hour and all of the events and resources mentioned during Rallies and Resources. I'm Laura Jones. My thanks to Nick Burns and you for plugging into your community tonight. Have a great night. We'll see you tomorrow.